You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Our guest today is William Webster, Judge William Webster. He was originally trained as a lawyer and served in the 70s as a federal district court judge and then as a federal court of appeals judge. And in 1978, President Carter appointed him the third director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI. From there, in 1987, President Reagan appointed him to head the CIA, succeeding William Casey. And he served in that position until August 31st, 1991. And I'm very pleased to say that he is the, uh, a founding uh, member of the board of the International Spy Museum and has been a source of uh, both uh, knowledge and, and motivation for all of us. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director, and uh, we'll go right into our conversation. We're delighted to have you here. And uh, let, me, you, Peter. let me just ask you, um, when you were appointed to go to the FBI, um, you had not come up through the ranks. This is always an issue. I remember it was. I'm CIA, as you know, by background. And what were your first impressions of that culture, that corporate culture of going in there, uh, and particularly after the, the very long tenure of J. Edgar Hoover and the great interest in people and what you would do with the FBI? Well, first, I have to qualify what you said just a bit, because I served under President Eisenhower as United States Attorney, where I worked very closely in prosecution of cases of violation of federal law with FBI officials, many of whom were my friends. I still have some very dear friends from going back a long, long way uh, to the Korean War, as a matter of fact, where uh, I now room with the... Uh, with a platoon leader from Iwo Jima, Marine, who was an FBI special agent chasing spies in Pearl Harbor when I picked up my ship when I was called back into service uh, 
uh, in the Navy in the Korean War. So you you were you were among friends as it I were. Felt, it was not a I, new I felt I, I was yeah. comfortable with mm -hmm. them. I was comfortable <clears throat> with their uh, sense of honesty, their forthrightness, uh, and their loyalty to the organization and to the country. So that was never a problem. The problem, really, uh, the challenge was that the FBI had along with CIA, been scrutinized in the church and Pike Committee reports, congressional reports in those early years, where there, were, there was confusion and contention, and the church committee uh, said that the FBI should stay at home, the CIA should stay abroad, and they shouldn't really spend much time with each other. So during that period of time, the FBI had engaged in... in counter-intelligence work and had participated in things that became known uh, pejoratively as black bag jobs, other things that had not been uh, well and clearly within our constitutional authority. So uh, the FBI, in a way, was, I won't stay down and out, but they were feeling the impact of that level of criticism. And... Uh, while I was very happy on the court, uh, I was persuaded by the then Attorney General, uh, Griffin Bell, who had himself been a appellate judge, that uh, it was, they needed someone like me, and I wasn't sure that was correct. But I, uh, not in order to start any rumors, I took myself to the public library by myself and read everything I could about what was going on, and I convinced myself that this was too important an organization not to get back on full track, and that if we were looking, if, we're, if I were looking for somebody that might have an easier course in doing that, it would be someone with my kind of background. So with that kind of analysis, uh, and with a little pushing from other friends who thought it would be right. A great opportunity to do some serious public service. I agreed to do it. Of course, since since uh, you were there, really, the counterintelligence has grown larger and larger as a, uh, as, a as a mission of the FBI. And of course, now with the challenge of, of terrorism and particularly domestic terrorism, we've seen that even uh, loom larger at the bureau. What? Do you recall when you did go, what were the, the major counterintelligence issues? Well, first, if I could, let me say that the FBI had expanded from purely criminal, traditional criminal activity to uh, a series of priorities, one of which was foreign counterintelligence. It, I think that work had been going on under uh, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, and Clarence Kelly, but it uh, was a top priority. Uh, the others as listed as top priorities were organized crime and white-collar crime. So those were the, uh, the, the principal, that, not the only thing, of course, they did, but those were given special emphasis. And then in 1980, I added terrorism to the category of top priorities. I bet I didn't answer your question. No, I no, I, no. You got it because the the, the priorities in the yeah. bureau have changed. Yes, virtually during your time and since. Right. Um, 
Let me touch on one of the things that is such a preoccupation of the media, and that is the uh, often the focus on, on in looking at the intelligence community, particularly relations between the CIA and the FBI uh, during that period, and when the, the cases came up afterwards, uh, that was a favorite topic of the let you and him fight. You know, so <laughs> was that? Uh, do you, do you recall? Do you have a sense of how the relations were when you went over well, when you went to the bureau? Yes, I do. I I, uh, I have to generalize a little bit about sure. this, but yeah. but. Uh, first, the, uh, the uh, staffing, the recruitment, uh, the source of the federal agents of the FBI, special agents of the FBI, and officers of the CIA, somewhat different. Uh, many of the officers uh, from CIA, including not only the analysts, but the, the operations officers and so forth, came on the recommendations of professors from Yale University. Now, that's not the only place, but they were a major source of supply. They had a certain attitude about how good they were, and they were good. Uh, the FBI uh, recruited from a, a different range of people, uh, and they had a different uh, approach, which made for differences. The FBI preached that every special agent would do. He had to know when he came aboard, he was expected to be able to do everything within the jurisdiction of the FBI, every kind of activity. Uh, and he was prepared to go anywhere he was assigned, wherever that might be. Over at the CIA, things were somewhat different, um, partly because they had some highly skilled specialists, over 3,500 PhDs were there, who didn't really want to assume the, that universal blanket responsibility. They wanted to work their specialty. In fact, I, when I, even when I went over there, I found that if you say, who do you work for? Rarely would you hear I work for the CIA, even if that was not a secret. But, or would they say, with the intelligence director, it would be, I work for SOVA, which was a, yeah. short for Soviet analysis. Yes. Uh, and they like to stay with their specialties, and they like not to be fungible. So there were differences in approaches that reflected uh, initial differences that we have largely, I want to emphasize, overcome. I used to shorten it this way, that, that the, the folks at the FBI referred to their counterparts in CIA as children of privilege. <laughs> And the folks at the CIA referred to the FBI as the long gray line at Fordham. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, and so those were the yeah. kinds of differences. Today, if I might carry that thought a little further, they recruit from the same hundred colleges and universities. They're more alike in so many ways. And after the Patriot Act was passed, after 9-11, sure. and that uh, concern about failure of imagination and so on, uh, They've had more occasion to work together because need to know changed to need to share, and their activities were more collaborative. And they found, not to their surprise, but because of their experience, they were all both very good at what they did, and they could and did work together differently. No. Well, that's certainly the sense I hear from both the leadership mm -hmm. of the Bureau and, and of CIA. In other words, the, 
the collaborative aspect has done nothing but improve over the years, particularly right. since 9-11 when the whole community right. pretty much had to draw the, draw the wagons in a circle right. and uh, contend with a common enemy. You, you certainly recall one of the major cases on your watch was John Walker, the yes. uh, naval petty officer who uh, uh, actually had recruited his son and tried to recruit his daughter and had, I think, uh, one cousin and a brother involved. Right. Did that? W w did you become quite involved in that in the course of it? Yes, uh, I was, but of course, I, I relied upon the those most skilled in, in counterintelligence activities to develop the case, identify the problem, find out who was responsible for the problem, and take the, the case forward. Uh, I, I think that uh, in either agency, the, when someone went bad, as they rarely did, but when they did, it was, a, it was almost like you'd been betrayed. And uh, so that made it very important that you that we get to the bottom of it and deal with it. Later on, as you may wish to talk about the Hansen case, probably the worst uh, damage done uh, was by Hansen, and uh, that was quite a story. And I was I was heavily involved in that one. Can you just talk about that a bit about the Hansen case? Yes, I mean, it's, because it's, he was yeah. an unusual fellow. Uh, he had. But he was not, he did not quite fit the collegial attitude inside the FBI that was there. And he never really seemed to appreciate that he was valued for what he could do. He had some unique talents, uh, one of them being uh, with technology. And he knew very well how to use technology for his purposes better than most, for which he did not receive any particular credit by way of advancement and the other kinds of things. And uh, it, he tended to chafe on that he was left out of some of these things. So, and it affected his, uh, his loyalty and uh, anger and uh, other concerns of that kind. Uh, the interesting thing is that when he started, when he defected to him, in, defected in the sense that he, sure. when he got recruited, mm -hmm. by, recruited himself to the Soviet Union, uh, he was uh, uh, unknown to them. And he was very, very careful and clever about how he did this. But he handed, because he was active in technology, he had access to any kind of information about individuals and what were in the files and so forth. And, uh, but he was very careful how he handed up that information, where he handed it up, where the drops were made, and things of that kind. And what I, I felt badly that it took too long to find him. I was gone from the bureau by that time and out of the FCI. Yes, I was right. called back no. by the director no. to run a study of the Hanson <clears throat> case, just as it was happening. Willie Free was the director at that time, uh, and while well, it was embarrassing that they had not, we, the FBI had not found. Neither had the Soviets. They did. The Russians did not know who this man was who was providing so much useful information to them. And they were afraid to spook him by trying to 
find out. So whatever he wanted, he got. Yeah. And he would come in and out for over 20 years. He would work for a while, and then for various reasons, he would back away. But even right up to the very end, they didn't know who was this mysterious person giving them more information. We lost more people through executions and otherwise than any other person. Well, it was during the early 80s that we, that, that we were losing assets, that is, agents yes. in, the, in the CIA sense, sources, um, in, in the Soviet Union particularly. Uh, and. Was that something you were aware of before you left, that there were these, that we were experiencing losses and no one really knew why? But this is before Hansen and Ames, of course, had yes. been uncovered. Well, it was off and on, yes. We knew we, we, knew we, they were picked up. Somebody, uh, uh, one in particular, his name I cannot recall now, we're very happy when he was been recalled to the, so he was being sent over there and they, uh, we're very happy with the, the office because now we'll get more information. Oh, he was being recalled to be apprehended yeah. and executed. So it was, we didn't know why. We knew we knew that somehow. Uh, I'll make a generalization that may be surprising, uh, may, not to take you off your discussion here, but more times than not, we located traitors spies, defectors, by other informants that we had recruited. Yes. We, as the saying was, it takes a spy to catch a spy. Sure. And that was true in both agencies. And so we did get information, not always in knowledge, because they didn't, they didn't know who it was, but they knew enough about little details and facts that permitted the organization to put the case together to pinpoint who it was yes. they were looking for. One of the major uh, secrets that, that Hansen had divulged to the Soviets was uh, what had been an FBI initiative to create some sort of tunnel. Mm -hmm. um, this was mentioned, as I remember, in the charging affidavit, and I, I don't think a, a great deal has come out since then. I think Judge Free comments on it in his book. Was that something you were aware of or well, would want to comment if, on? If you're talking about tunnels, uh, I immediately think of, of tunnels into the Soviet embassy here being yes, one of the that's things what that I, we I mean, did, yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, we made some bad, we all made some bad mistakes. I don't know whether to take responsibility for any of them or not, but I guess I take my share uh, on. But one of them was not who built the building. For some reason, we were willing, we being a U.S. government, was willing to allow the Soviets to build their own embassy, whereas we allowed them to build our embassy in Moscow. And of course, I have actually given uh, somewhere out here in the uh, in display at the museum is a piece we have it. of the material. It's in the museum, yeah. That the chief of station gave me yes. that was that was part of their spy material they put into the pipes and the tubes. <laughs> everything else so they didn't know what rooms what we were going to use in what rooms but they knew they could listen into anything if it should turn out to be useful so this was going on we allowed that to happen and uh, on the other hand we didn't require them to let us build their building 
So the tunneling was an afterthought, was a <laughs> way to see if we could get get in. And they were up on a high hill here in Washington, and it was building their new building, and so we were able to move in that direction. Well, that was one of the major technical sort yes. of secrets uh, that yeah. he divulged. You, um, you mentioned tunnels and, and the effect and the embassy. Were you aware when it was finally revealed, when that was in the charging David affidavit, had you been aware of the, uh, that as an activity that the Bureau was engaged in? Well, I knew about the tunneling, yeah. sure, yeah. from day one. I, we sure. had to coordinate that with the State Department and mm -hmm. with other government resources and so yeah. on. Well, out of the blue in 1987, President Reagan invited you to head up the CIA. Do you remember the circumstances of, of when you so, sort of got the call, as it were? I'll say. <laughs> well, I was in, I was in, I'd, I'd served for nine years. I think I was getting ready to go into my 10th and final year That's as the a final, director yeah. of the FBI. Yeah. And I was thinking about going back into practice and uh, what I would do next and so forth. Uh, Bill Casey uh, had been uh, director of CIA. He had taken with an illness that became terminal. He was in the hospital for several weeks and then finally passed away and uh, resigned and then passed away. So uh, it was pretty obvious at that point he had to, there had to be a replacement. And my name, uh, uh, I knew, would be apt to come up, although I didn't, had no reason to feel certain it would have. And I was focused on leaving, and I was telling the then Attorney General, uh, I think it was a feel would I be interested was sort of the kind of the question. And then I'd say, I, I have other plans. I'm ready to go back. I said, I, it, it, I've forgotten how I put it now, but I said, I, I don't want any emissaries. If it's important enough, if the president wants me, he knows where I am. Something like that, a little more politely put. And uh, so I was preparing to do the uh, annual request for budget authorization for the FBI, the whole annual budget, and was getting ready to testify. So you're, you're on the way to the Hill. I was really yeah. on my way to the yeah. Hill within an hour to talk on that, and I was focused on doing a good job and making sure I had everything ready to go, and I got a call from President Reagan, and who'd always been very nice to me. We'd gotten along beautifully, and uh, that was not a question of a stranger calling, but he was, he was, he adopted on me without much fanfare and said he would like me to take over the, the FBI, I mean, over the CIA, and uh, would I do so? And, and I told him very complimented that he wanted to do that. And I said, I, uh, I said that I have my, I have to think about, I really want to pray about this. I said, my mother, my, my children, my, my wife was passed away. I had these children. They're looking forward to getting me back. And I, I said, I've got to testify in an hour. I said, could you, he wanted to have a press conference that afternoon and the, uh, at the White House, and I was saying I'd really like to have a little more time. And and where were you at the time? Were you in? I was at the head, FBI headquarters, ready to go up to the hill. <laughs> and he was very good about it. Yeah. He said, "Fine." He did, I didn't realize he'd have to change the, the date. 
the next day, but that's what he was yeah. moved to do. And then uh, I gave when I gave my testimony, I don't remember the order. I got in touch with my children. And I remember my daughter, who later became a huge fan of the CIA, but she said, oh, Dad, I just love the FBI. But that other place is scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, but by the way, when I, when I first heard that account, my impression was you were actually in your car on the way to the hill well, when you got the, car, the call. No, I was I was at the office. I was actually okay. It was, right. But I was ready to go. Right, we ready. The car was ready. You're to going take down me to there. the car. And then I t I uh, I thought it through, and uh, uh, I realized they were supportive. And uh, uh, then I got a call later in the afternoon from Howard Baker, who was his chief of staff, and sure. Senator Baker. Yeah. And uh, just calling, and no pressure, just wanting so they could make their plans yeah. for the next morning and, I, and at that point i said i'd be honored to do it and I, that was the end it's a great story we'll be right back after this the it world used to be simpler you only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Let's move for a moment to the scary place. Yeah. Um, it was extraordinary. You are still the only individual who served as head of both agencies. Well, I always say, I don't know whether that's a good thing or not. <laughs> if, they, if they don't repeat it, they'll yeah. say something about me. <laughs> well, you obviously were there. You wouldn't no. have been there in either place as long as you were yeah. if you hadn't been successful. But I'd be, I'd be interested to know. You, you are, uh, were a, a, a prosecuting attorney. Uh, a judge. Uh, you were then head of the, the senior law enforcement agency of, of this country. And then you went to the CIA, which is part of the executive branch. But its uh, approach to its work is very different. Uh, its activities overseas, the things it becomes involved in, um, often skirt the edge of, of, sure. of, of legality, uh, even morality, as we know in our own time. And you've touched a bit on, on the difference between the two cultures. But what was it like going there? Was there a degree of, of wariness about you since you were coming from the Bureau? And how did you find that culture when you finally arrived? Well, those are several questions. I'll try to answer them all. Thank which you. Order, I didn't mean to. No, that's all right. I, <laughs> that's a load of the it, uh, I, I knew there were some over there that would be concerned that I would uh, be too rigidly... Uh, uh, by the book, by by week, and and I had made a point where the FBI was concerned when I came because of the problems they'd had, uh, emphasizing that um, in my remarks in front of the president, the vice president, and the intelligence committees, and everyone who was there, and the chief justice for me, and I said we're going to do the work that the American people expect of us, and we're going to do it in the way that the Constitution demands of us. And you know, years later, long after I left 
that they never forgot that, and they named a conference center for me over there and put that statement on the wall. So it was a, it's, it was part of what they understood was their role. Now, we switch over to the CIA. Circumstances, the, the position that I took was not all that different because what we were doing in terms of gathering intelligence involved espionage and necessarily we had to cross the laws of other countries from whom we were collecting information, about whom we were collecting information. The point at which there was some tension uh, with some of the people at the agency, but not many of them, and certainly not in their legal department, was my view that we break, we have to break other people's laws to do the job that the American people expect of us. But we are subject to our own laws, and it is no license to it. We are not above the law, and it is no license for us to take liberties with what, this, what has been imposed upon us as our duty and our responsibility to follow the Constitution at home. It was that simple. And, and uh, I never had any real trouble with that. And I don't remember uh, many cases, if any, in, except in where discipline was necessarily involved, where people had tried to do some of the same Sure. Things over here that they could get, they could and should do abroad, and we had to call them on that. Did you find that having been head of the FBI and now going to the CIA, did you find that a, a real that uh, uh, that really greatly enhanced the cooperation between the very fact that you had been there and now you were at the agency? Did that contribute well, I, I, a great I, deal to the Peter, collaboration? I think it was more a yeah. continuation. Okay. In fact, I put out some feelers when uh, I knew they were thinking about me at CIA, and, and the word that came back to me is that we know we know Webster, and we're comfortable with Webster. So it was, wasn't wasn't uh, who's this guy they're going to inflict us inflict on us? So I I didn't really expect, although I assumed there would be some who had uh, been pretty successful as pejoratively as cowboys abroad and needed to be reined in somewhat in how they felt their, they should carry out their duties in yeah. the United States. Well, it was, it was certainly one of my great privileges and honors at the agency to work directly for you as uh, in the media relations field. It was field. always a pleasure, Peter. But that, that, was, that was certainly a highlight. I remember certain things you were stressed very importantly, and, and among them was trying to develop succession plans for the agency so we wouldn't have to keep... <laughs> bringing people out of retirement or other right. places to head up the agency. Let me just touch on a final thing as we wind up. Um, this has been a, a, a terrific interview, very direct answers to uh, some, some tricky questions. We're both now here about a week or so after the uh, NSA leaker Edward Snowden uh, turned up in Hong Kong and uh, made his statement, uh, which has been picked up now, and, and I think as late as this morning, is now, or yesterday it would have been, he has released other information uh, clearly damaging to U.S. national security now. And what we are told is that The Guardian and, and perhaps others have even more secrets. 
um, and this is now June of 2013. Um, what are your thoughts on the case? It's, it's, it's been, a, a, and it was funny, you and I were discussing it just before this conversation. And, uh, and I'm thinking back to the president's reaction, President Obama, that, that he deplored what Snowden did, but welcomed the debate. And uh, I'd be very interested in your reflections right now. Well, of course, we're just, we're in on the beginning of a debate that'll go on for a long, long time. But a couple of things are, are clear in, in my mind is that we're ambivalent about intelligence. You may remember Deputy Director Vernon Walters, who was later to our, our UN and Germany and so forth. He said the American people were ambivalent about intelligence. When they were frightened, they wanted a lot of it. And when they didn't, they felt it was somehow a little immoral. Uh, and I used to say the same thing about security, that security, that people don't like a lot of security. They want too much security. It's always too much until this day it's not enough. Now, that, that's the tension that that's there. And oftentimes, particularly I, I noticed it during the last presidential election, there was a tendency when we did something well, such as the, the takedown of Osama bin Laden, people wanted to talk about the details. And, and uh, even more uh, dangerously uh, damaging, when we were doing significant cybersecurity, cyber activities yeah. against Iran, because to to move them away from uh, their nuclear endeavors, uh, to talk about what we were doing and our worms and so forth, means that we are giving to our enemies the opportunity to correct the situation, to avoid it, to prevent its effectiveness. And that's a lot of damage to do that. And uh, so you, you can't say even with the best of motives, you think they're, they're, they're engaging in things they don't really understand. And, and this one, uh, so far as I can see, was very carefully thought out from the standpoint of what was appropriate and proper. Very clear listening to, to uh, Director Clapper, the head director of national intelligence, that we did not listen to where they were looking for information. To, this metadata process was a way of getting out in front to recognize trends and do something that we haven't been able to do successfully in the past and are learning how to do, and that is get the information to prevent something from happening, to, to see it in its incipient stage and find out about it through court-ordered procedures. Every step of the way was designed to protect privacy. They're not listening in on conversations until those conversations become subject to intrusion under a court order because you're doing something they shouldn't. There are foreign agents operating here about doing something. And uh, so the, uh, from the standpoint of how it was structured, I find it difficult to understand why anyone think, would think they were doing something contrary to law or unconstitutional. I was very careful about that. 
and getting him messages of very mm. information and, and approaches that would be very useful in improving our resilience, but more importantly, preventing the terrorist activity from taking place. And that's hard to do if you can't get, get ahead of the game. And uh, so they'll be arguing about whether he was a hero or a, or a uh, traitor and what to do about him, and that will that argument will continue, I suppose, whether he's found or not. But it, it's uh, uh, I don't have a ready answer for it until we people can come to understand the importance of secrecy in gathering sensitive in, uh, intelligence in order to better protect and safeguard our country. Yeah. Well, there's no question that he certainly violated his uh, right. agreements, whether it was with CIA, NSA, or, or Booz Allen, and, uh, his, his oath to protect the secrets. So regardless of how, I mean, in fact, it has held, it triggered the debate, but regardless of that, I, 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 I'm not hearing a great deal of, uh, of approval. I, I'm hearing from some supporters, but I think they, Fail to understand what he's done to bring this to the public. There are other ways that it that it could have been. Absolutely. Done. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you took over the agency at a particularly difficult time because it was the Iran Contra period, and how did that affect your work and the agency at the time, from your perspective? Well, it it in a way it reminded me of the, the tough times we had. When at the FBI, they were they were in going through this same process. I had no doubt that we would work our way through it, and uh, uh, actions had to be reviewed, and I had them reviewed. I told the uh, Senate I I would not open new investigations, uh, but I would review the record, and if action needed to be taken, it would be taken, and and we did take action in some places. And we're relieved to find that in most cases, uh, the uh, those involved had performed as they should have performed. Uh, Iran Contra, in a way, was not, as I remembered, a CIA activity. These are polit political people making judgments about arms for hostages and other decisions of that kind. They were relying on various information supplied by the agency, not always relying on the information they got, but they, that was not the role of the CIA to, to make that happen. Uh, let me say this, uh, if I could change the sub, not change the subject, but use a better example than Iran-Contra, and that's how we dealt with covert action. Now, public does not really understand that because it's covert and much of it is secret, but the process is no secret. Uh, covert action occurs when the military means cannot accomplish or support our overt foreign policy as successfully as we would like. Covert uh, action occurs when the diplomats are not able by diplomatic means to achieve our objectives. And so, the problem was handed back to the intelligence community, particularly the CIA, to come up with an activity that would be covert 
that, or a series of activities that would support our policy in a particular country or foreign place, make it work. And it would be, of course, be secret. Sometimes it would be propaganda. Sometimes it would be one thing or another. Um, what we did was come up with a plan. And then we vetted it within the CIA, as you probably remember. The obvious things, uh, can we do, is there anything that offends U.S. laws about this? Can we do this legally? Do we have or can we get the funding for it? Are we likely to succeed in, in, in our objectives and have a good chance of success if it's done covertly, secretly? And then I threw in a couple more that weren't always popular, but I put in, one was easy. Is it consistent with our foreign policy? Because obviously it wouldn't make sense for us to have an overt foreign policy and then a policy that was inconsistent with that that we were doing secretly. And so that's a yes or no. The tougher question was, I said, you know, these things ultimately become public down the road. And when they do, will it make sense to the American people? Well, there was a lot of pushback on that. <laughs> oh, that's subjective. That's subjective. I said, I know it's subjective. But I want your opinion about it. You're recommending this to me before I submit it to the president. I want you to know... Think about it, you know. How will they feel about what we did in a way that relates to the problem? How will they feel about Iran-Contra, you know, when they yes. thought of what we did? Uh, and uh, then from there, that process, we met with the full national security. The National Security Council members sat there and asked questions and took shots at what we did in the presence of the president. And the president, following this and our presentation would make a decision. If he said, let's do it, he made a formal written finding. And that finding was submitted, I believe, within 48 hours to the two intelligence committees of the House and Senate at the top level. So that while it was not, it was still a secret activity, the, uh, the people who had an interest in what we were doing all got to know and they got to vet it and debate it, and we came out of it with a process that made sense. Uh, I think that's, uh, having a process is very, very sound. I think we're going into periods right now of use of drones and other things where a process needs to be formed, not just left to the discretion of the president to put people on a targeted kill list or something of that kind. Yeah but a process by which we collectively arrived at a decision that can be kept secret, but is sanctioned and would be approved by the American people. Yeah. Well, the second of your two questions couldn't be more apt, since we now know many of the covert actions that have been carried out in the past, and it raises your question, do, do the American people approve of all of those, or are there some they don't? Yeah. And uh, we may learn more in the days to come. Let me ask you one final question question on, on that subject. One of the really dramatic things that happened during your tenure was the coup in, in Russia, in Moscow, in August of 1991. Do you remember when you first heard about that and, and what your reactions were at the time? Well, I, I don't think I would be stretching things to say that our analysts have been measuring those changes 
saw them coming. There were huge personalities, as you know, over there, and, and uh, Gromyko and Yeltsin and others, different, different types of things were happening. And uh, uh, other incidents that were affecting Russia, they, uh, oh, we at CIA had done a great deal to help the Mujahideen, the tribal leaders in Afghanistan, develop the capability to drive the Russians out of their country. Good things were happening there that were not good things at home. There were a lot of people angry with the military, disappointed, and so forth. So things were things were unsettled. Uh, the attempted coup uh, on on uh, Romico was was uh, uh, not unexpected, but came in the way. On Gorbachev. I'm sorry. No, no, I, I just, I was <laughs> yeah. processing what you were saying. Yeah, on Gorbachev. And I yeah. was listening yeah. to the Gromico and thinking, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> Gorbachev. I was on the, incidentally, I had a pleasure of co, co out of Mason University, Gromico, uh, not Gromico, uh, Gorbachev. And yeah. I, I, comparing notes as we look back together. Anyway, back to the, to the subject here. Uh, the, the, uh, what was taking place at that point was dramatic. I was in the President Bush's office, in the Oval Office, when he was talking to Yeltsin. And Yeltsin had stood down the tanks that were out in front. And uh, the President, frankly, was on a personality basis, did not really like Yeltsin uh, as much as he liked Gorbachev. Gorbachev. And, uh, but he changed. He changed his view. He put the phone down. He said, "He just said, Mr. President, we're going to arrest those people and try them and put them in jail." <laughs> yeah. And it it just it, it it that was one of the standoff moments that, that I felt were probably pivotal in what was going to happen. And of course the. Uh, the lights turned out at the end of the year, and there was no war, no violence beyond that. Yeah, and no more Soviet Union. And no more Soviet yeah. Union. Yeah. Well, Judge Webster, it's been a terrific talking to you this afternoon. A great interview. And thank you. Thank you so much for joining it's us. It's always a pleasure to be here, and I congratulate you on a terrific job you have done directing this wonderful spy museum. The public has learned a lot, and they've learned it in the right way. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey that's cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now.